This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GABFEST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 24th, 2015, the Would You Attend a Gay Wedding edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, John Dickerson of Slate, CBS News, incoming presumptive host of Face the Nation uh, is here with me. John, I was just wondering if you, are you more presumptive than Hillary Clinton is the nominee? <laughs> or, or would you say that that uh, she's still, there's still a chance she could um, not get it? I think what's you, true for me is true for her as well, which is it's mine to lose. <laughs> uh, but I you guess you could still I, blow it. Oh. I could still blow it. I could still, you know, right? And I don't you'll know. know by, you'll know by June. I'll know you've by got it. yeah, exactly. I'll know when the cameras are rolling and they say my name that I've that I've made it through. Uh, and that, of course, was Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in New York today. Hello, Emily. I noticed uh, on Twitter that Emily is going to be on a pretty high-powered panel. <laughs> I will be the least. Kamala. It's with Kamala Harris, oh, Katie wow. Couric, and Ashley Judd. You forgot oh Anita Sarkeesian, who's the most important person of them all. Yeah, I will be the least well-dressed and surely the person who will speak for like 30 seconds to answer some legal question. and then. What be... was the context? It's, a, it's Tina Brown's Women in the World Summit. It's about trolling online. Hmm. What does Ashley Judd know about trolling? Oh, my gosh. She's she had a just... lot of trouble with it, yeah. David. Thank yeah, you very much. Right. What does Katie Couric know about trolling? She's the moderator, I believe. I'm not sure. And I'm sure she knows plenty about it. Basically, any female celebrity. Also, I mean... just just not to ask a tough question here, Emily, but <laughs> if you're on the panel and Kamala Harris is on the panel, who is, if I remember, was the Attorney General of California, what possible legal advice could you offer that Kamala Harris couldn't offer better? That is a very believe, good question. <laughs> but I believe, if I may interject here, that Emily Badalon is a is an expert, a world-renowned expert, sought far and wide for her uh, guidance and sagacious contributions on the topic of bullying. Surely and trolling I'll, is right. very much uh, in that category. Am I not right, Yes, Emily. you are right. And surely I'll come up with some cockamamie legal theory that Kamala Harris would have the sense not you to. You should ask say. Kamala Harris what she's going to do when she's senator. Yes, uh, I do plan to ask her that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Uh, we have a show today, actually. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about the refugee migration crisis in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, 
and the horrific tragedy in the Mediterranean that has focused attention on what to do about these enormous movement of populations across the world. Then the Koch brothers anoint Scott Walker as their favorite son candidate for the election. Or did they? We'll find out from John. (laughs) Then the Supreme Court gay marriage case. Arguments are Tuesday. Emily will preview it. And we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, should... I still don't know how to pronounce his name. Jahar, right? That's our, that's our pronunciation because I never listened to... Is Jahar, it's not Jokar? Jahar Sarnayev. I think I it's Jahar. I think it's Jokar, but who knows? Oh. Whatever. The Boston Marathon bomber. Should he get the death penalty? We'll talk about that. All right. Our first topic. As many as 900 refugees drowned in the Mediterranean Sea last week as a boat overcrowded with migrants sank thanks in part to its ricketiness and in part to poor seamanship from its captain, who I think has been arrested. Arrested, yeah. Yes. Arrested. The tragedy has drawn attention to the huge number of people who are fleeing across the Mediterranean into Europe, many of them from Libya. There are lots of reasons for this movement of peoples. There are people fleeing the violence in Syria and other parts of the Middle East, including Libya. There are African migrants in particular, who are seeking economic opportunities in Europe. There are Libyan militias who are getting into the the coyote business because it's a way of raising money for them in the ongoing civil war that is in Libya. There are budget cuts that have reduced the European patrols of the sea. So there's a perception that maybe it's easier to get into Europe and it's a more attractive target. So if you're an economist, the best solution to all of this is pure open borders. Let people migrate where they will. It's It will create the best economic benefit. People will flow and they will be more productive wherever it is they end up because they've made the choice to go there. But obviously, that is not going to happen. We don't even need to talk about it, John. Well, no, no, no. I do. We okay. talk about well, why it Well, yes. Yeah, so happen. I was – in the reading, I must say, I didn't um, – it was presented as sort of in the way you did it, which is like – well, of course, this makes the most sense and the productivity will go up and GDP will go up. And But nobody like ex- walked dummy me through how that happens. Ah, you strain- should find a piece by Adam Davidson in the New York Times magazine from, I don't know, like a month or six weeks ago in which he talked about the... The case for this, he basically made the case and he was writing about what most economists find is that all immigration lifts all boats. In other words, the people who come, yes, not, they take... Not, not, not a good metaphor to use this week. All right, sorry. <laughs> immigration does good for the societies that it enters as well as for the immigrants themselves. Yes, the immigrants take low-wage work and there is a small fight about whether that... Or not a small fight. There's a big fight. There is a small amount of evidence that that hurts other low-wage workers. But the important thing about immigrants is they also buy a lot of stuff. They're consumers, and they work hard, and they are part of increasing GDP. And so if you're being rational about this, it seems like there is a case for open borders. Well, I'm sure the economists have figured it all out, and so this is a dumb idea. But, I mean, it seems like the numbers here are so huge into some of these countries that you run into problems with like housing and there aren't enough jobs to take this kind of inflow. I mean, so you could imagine if if it takes us the slower amount that you would have, but maybe the point is with open borders that it settles. It creates an incredible amount of a a big swell of economic activity when you have a lot of right. But in Europe, you have like limited geography. I mean, you can like they build the houses. There is room in these countries. Have you driven around France and Italy? They're not like densely populated wall to wall. There are some big cities. My recollection of 
those countries. I mean, you, it's not densely populated far away from the inner cities where the I mean, from the city centers where the jobs are. So then you have like a commuting issue and a structure of the highways and, and transportation issue. And it just seems like the structures are not there. These city centers and these countries are groaning already under particularly in Europe under the weight of trying to have a um, social welfare state that takes care of people in huge numbers already in their existing numbers. It just feels like more people would strain that system. Let's, let's move off the actual full open borders question because it's, I don't think it is – Well, it's not plausible. It's, it's not, not plausible. Yeah. And in fact, what we've seen in Europe is that as there has been a migration, even at the relatively low levels that there is in Europe, even if you think about all these people who are coming across – into Europe from Africa and the Middle East, it's still relatively small numbers. I think it's relatively small numbers compared to the number in the United States. Yes. And it's certainly relatively small compared to what the number who could be there. And yet, even with that, even with that, you've had the rise of neo-fascist nationalistic parties, anti-immigration parties, ultra-right-wing parties, and huge anti-immigrant sentiment. So given the tension, Emily, between the nativist at home people who who are fearful, resentful, prejudiced, hateful and and sometimes legitimately and sometimes not and the the fact that there are these people who are desperately needy either for jobs or for peace what's the balance you know given the tension what's going to happen is a parallel to the united states borders in which they're going to increase security they don't want hundreds or thousands of people dying in the water that's shameful But they're going to send almost all of those people back. They've only set up 5,000 special permits for people to be able to stay in Europe. I mean, this is a tiny number given the waves of people who are trying to come, as you're saying. And so, you know, what we're going to have is like send the boats back. And unfortunately, the humanitarian crisis in Libya and other countries in the region is so intense that people are going to keep trying to come just as they keep trying to get into Mexico, even though it is increasingly dangerous to to cross and the risk of deportation is higher. You mean get into the U.S. from Mexico? Is that what I did? I mix that up? Yes, that's what I meant. One going back to David, you were saying that the numbers of people coming in are smaller than in the United States. I got confused by what your claim was about how many the, I think the, the numbers are smaller. I well, think the number in, of migrants are still smaller than the number who are coming to the U.S. Oh, the U.S. has this, this, this huge well, land border, which is taking people all the time. Because the there was one of the figures that said that in Germany alone, in the last month, there were 30,000 asylum seekers. And the total number in the U.S. of asylum seekers is like 120,000. Now, this is that's different than migrants. But, but that yeah, asylum Germany seekers and migrants pace. are really different categories. Cause but most- in this case, all these people are coming in as asylum seekers. That's part of the problem is the processing of asylum seekers is part of the system that's getting strained here. Was but, it 120,000 so 120 to- for the year? 120 total in the, for the year in U.S. and in Germany alone, they're on pace to be 360,000. Per year, so that's like a hundred and ninety eight percent increase over last year in Germany month to month, which just just give people a sense of the pulse of the incoming here but in let, Europe. It's gargantuan compared to where it was. Well, but if you it's gargantuan compared to what it was. But if you think about the United States, where you have more than twelve million twelve million um, people who are living right, illegally as now. well yeah, as yeah. people who are people who are living uh, legally who right. are immigrants. But that's not, but I guess what I guess just to explain where the situation is, it's those twelve million are already here. The net actually increase. There actually isn't there been a net reduction in the U.S. of inflows. I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because so 
It's just a different problem at the moment. There's massive inflows in Europe, not so much in the U.S. at the moment. In Australia, they have taken on this policy of turning all the boats away. They've they've basically told anyone who's coming by boat, you will never be allowed to live in Australia. Anyone who comes by boat, if if your boat is found, we will put you on these very remote, horrible islands. That's where you're going. You're not coming to Australia. And they believe it's been a massive deterrent that they, they have successfully prevented people who might have been migrating from Southeast Asia into Australia from doing so. Well, those people because- are coming from Indonesia, which is not war-torn the way Libya and Syria are. And also, that probably means that those people are just going somewhere else. I mean, this is one of those issues nationally where you can solve it in one country and then just sort of push the problem onto a different country or a different region. Well, but a, a lot of the, 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 the people who died in Libya boat, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I don't think anyone actually knows the numbers, but they are they're African, and they're presumably much more likely to be economic migrants than war migrants. Not to say that there aren't thousands and thousands of people fleeing violence in Syria or in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan or Libya or Yemen. There are. But I don't necessarily think that the, all the migrants in the Mediterranean are not necessarily those people. Those are economic migrants as well. Right. It's going to be a mix. But the reason we're having a humanitarian crisis and a real rise in refugees at the moment has to do with the world's war-torn regions. And this is true in Central and Latin America as well. I mean, on the United States border, again, we're dealing with all of the unrest and the byproducts of that from Guatemala and Honduras. I don't think that's true. It's completely yeah, well, no, David. It's the gang. Come on. It's the yeah, yeah. The gangs in Guatemala and Honduras, ga- the kids trying to escape those gangs, there are that some, violence. That is that is cl- it's clear that that's a component, but there, there's a huge component of migration which is economic people searching for economic opportunity. I mean, the people yes, who are coming from Africa are Why seeking are economic opportunity. What point are you trying well, to make? Well, because I think your claim is that your claim was that the that the reason migration is increasing, the reason is that the world is war torn. No, well, and I don't think that's true. I think the I reason think, that migration increases all the time is that there people are aware of economic opportunities elsewhere, and also there's some element of it which is which is war. But my point about who died on that ship is is that if it is, and I don't have the numbers, but if it's seventy percent. Africans who are not probably war migrants, they are economic migrants, then that's the overwhelming majority of the people on the ship. So the reason this is important, though, is I think and the point Emily was making is when you're returning them to Indonesia in the Australian case, you're returning them to a place where they can be reabsorbed as opposed to you can't return them to, to Libya. So that's why it matters whether it's war-torn They're not, not. going to be shot on the beach when they come back. That was my point. And I don't know why you're arguing over numbers that you don't have. That seems well because dumb. because Sorry. I think you 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 made a claim about that war is causing this huge rise in migration, which I don't know that it's true. War is part is one component of it, but it is by no means the reason that people tend to move. Most people who are moving are moving voluntarily. Now, voluntarily means different. It doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Voluntarily may mean I have a really terrible situation economically, but it. It is because people perceive an economic benefit to moving. But it depends the most how part. dangerous the trip is, right? So people who become really desperate and get on rickety boats and pay thousands and thousands of dollars to 
smugglers are sometimes, yes, it is simply economic opportunity, but increasingly around the world, we're having these trouble spots where people are desperate. We did not have tens of thousands of people trying to leave Syria before a year or so ago. That's like a new phenomenon because it of is, the war there. It is, tens and, of thousands of people is a small drop in the bucket compared to the number of people who are trying to move across borders in the world. But they create a particular kind of humanitarian uh, urgency, crisis, right. urgency, and, and they are the, they're the asylum seekers. They're the people who we give often some governments give special paths to to immigration to because we don't want to send them back right but exactly. I, I, I think this is an important question case. because it, it, how you think about this helps determine what how you think about your policy because if your presumption is that all your migrants or you or the migrants you have to solve for are war migrants you reach one likely outcome. If you assume they're economic migrants, you reach another likely outcome. Right, And, and this I is think part it's of actually the genuinely important. Well, it is. But I think also this is part of why there's some pressure on Europe to accept more of these people, because countries like Turkey, which is obviously borders Syria, have been taking on much more of the burden of the refugee crisis from that country. And so to have the Europeans say, like, here, you can have 5,000 extra permits and good luck to the rest of you, feels really small-minded and as if they're not doing their part. Not that the United States necessarily does its part either. I'm just I think it's also a, if if this is a follow-on effect of the military action in Libya uh, which many European countries were in favor of. In fact, we remember the whole leading from behind charge against President Obama. That was the people who were doing the leading and the from behinding. <laughs> he was behind the Europeans. So if if you can make the case that these refugees are being forced out of the country, not because they're seeking better economic opportunity, though, of course, that's part of what motivates them, but because the country has turned into a burning chaos and there's no structure left behind after this invasion, then these Asylum seekers are the natural result of policy right. in those countries. That is true. Um, and so that's a way in which they have a moral obligation that seems to me to be larger than simply if people were just coming to their doors asking for jobs. Well, two things. One, you have a greater moral obligation when somebody's saying, hey, I don't just need a job. I'll get killed if I go back. And then compounding that is I'll get killed if I go back in part because of the conditions that you set right. into play with your policy. I, right. This takes me back to a mental argument I've been having with myself since before 9-11, which is about states in a world. So we, we had, particularly in this part of the world, in the Middle East, we had a lot of nation states which were artificial, which were dictatorial, where you had minorities ruling. But they were states which had structure and which didn't have freedom, but they had some measure of order. When you have order without freedom, it's a terrible situation. But it turns out that freedom without order is a lot worse. Well, right. I mean, Libya is seeming kind of like Somalia right now where there's just anarchy. And that's also part of why the smugglers are operating with impunity. However, it does not seem like the Europeans are interested in trying to go and solve the root conditions in Libya. Okay. All right. So given that, so we're not, so Europeans, we're not going to go solve the root conditions, nor are we going to accept every person that gets on a boat and, and attempts to make for our shores. What do they need to do? I mean, shut, they're well, going to do shut, the least. They're going to shut the doors. Yeah. Well, then they're going to do the least po- thing they can do, which is to make a big statement about how we don't want people dying in the sea and we're going to increase our rescue operations. But they're actually not going to bring them back up to the level of what the Italians were doing up until December with the operation they stopped. And and then people will keep dying and they'll just wait and see how many people it is and how shameful it becomes. Well, in part because you there's a they don't want to restart the. What was it? The Mare Nostrum or Mare whatever. Mare Nostrum. They, Latin. Mare Nostrum. 
Well, you say that like Latin as if that would help me. I think um, it must mean our C. Our C, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. So, but it's because there's an argument made, and there are plenty of people who are, um, whether this is true or not, are in a, a position to want it to be true, uh, which is that that acted, and we've heard this in the U.S. immigration debate, as a magnet. So that program, which has been shut down or I guess massively scaled back and in a new program sort of deals with these asylum seekers was seen as a magnet that was drawing them in the first place. So the argument to restart that is going to be hard to uh, win. John, very quickly, a last question on this. Do you think the European immigration crisis and the deaths in the Mediterranean will have any impact on the American immigration debate? Will Will it affect how people think about this at all? I think to the extent that it shows chaos there will be people, argue, maybe on both sides, who will just use the pictures of the chaos, which will put it on the news, to then say, see, this is what happens if your borders are too open, or see, this is what happens when you shut your borders down, or it's just the use of the pictures to make the, the case in the U.S., I think. I mean, it's funny, we can talk about Scott Walker in the next, but I mean, one of the things Scott Walker talked about this week is is limiting the flow of legal immigrants into the United States, which is a whole, that's even... Putting himself that, into, like, serious right-wing territory there. Um, yeah, that's a whole new level of... Uh, anyway, but I think that would be the way in which um, a cautionary tale or instructive case for the U.S. one, but not because anybody, you know, is going to be particularly up in arms about what's happening in um, in Europe. All right, let's hear from our sponsor this week. We have a new sponsor, which is Squarespace. Squarespace has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, new templates, and a great new feature called Cover Pages. In the pre-Squarespace era, in the early days, it was impossible to make a website. It was very difficult. It was confusing and hard and off-putting for people like you and me who are not the most technologically savvy people in the world. But with Squarespace... And especially with their new Squarespace 7, it's easy. You have Google Apps you can run into it. You can partnership with Getty Images, which means you can import photos super easy. There are cover pages. There are lots of templates for creating exactly the kind of website you want to create. It's always got a beautiful design. It's always simple and powerful. And there is always 24-7 support via live chat and email. It's only $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for a year. Also, responsive design. As a, as a someone who's been thinking a lot about website redesign, responsive design, which means it works on a phone, it looks good on a phone, it scales up to a tablet, it scales up to a desktop, or starts at a desktop, scales down, it always looks good. That's really important, and Squarespace always has that. And they come with a free online store. You can do e-commerce. So you can start a trial with no credit card required and build your website today. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GABFEST and get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the GABFEST. We thank Squarespace for their support of the GABFEST. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. The Koch brothers. The Koch brothers. That's the way you, when I say Koch brothers, a That's lot of you what are hearing, everyone Koch hears. brothers <laughs> hinted that they love Scott Walker this week in the, the plutocrat primary, the plutocrat primary to win... Did you the, make the, that up? The That's great. Shit. What? Plutocrat primary. I like that. I don't know. I think so. Probably not. Good work. The plutocrat primary to win the hundreds of millions of dollars that they're going to pour into the election or to get the, the jump on it, the grassroots support they can help, the, the research they can provide, the logistical support, all the things that come with Coke support. Maybe it's going to Scott Walker. Maybe it's not. What did they say, John? And, well, and 
does this and is what this does it all mean? Read mean? the well, tea leaves uh, of their every uh, word. Well, I think if you were to pick the candidates from that the Koch brothers would like, well, first, what the big big thing it means is that they're not funding uh, one candidate over another in the Republican primary. So the big money they're going to put into the race will come into the general. It's almost certain that they would put it behind whoever the Republican nominee is likely to be because they are so. No, I'm sure they're going to develop a latent affection for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That is surely going to happen. They are so um, terrified of the one world socialist forces of collectivism that are that are arrayed against all good and right thinking people. And therefore, they're going to spend this money on whoever the nominee is. Um, I think, though, if you look at they have a previous relationship with Scott Walker because they um, supported him and supported what he had did and has been doing in Wisconsin and in part because of what he's actually doing, but also because it bedevils the unions and all of the the liberal types who were against Walker. It was always kind of a natural that they would be in sync. And so in a private event, Walker was named as the one that I guess was a David Koch who said Scott Walker's, you know, should be the nominee and he would win handily, which I think is a um, just one little tweak there. Unlikely, not because of Scott Walker or because of Hillary Clinton, but because of the way the country is divided and that we know from the political scientists that the way the general election is going to work out is it's basically everybody's going to sort by ideology and then there will be a small group left. So it's almost impossible to win by a huge margin. I mean, Obama won by a big, a relatively big, historically speaking, margin in 2008. But there's nothing that suggests that's going to happen again in in the next presidential election and that if it were to happen, it's unlikely it would happen because of Scott Walker's talent, but because of Hillary Clinton's total and utter collapse, which we could we could talk about in another episode. So if the Koch brothers, if they're not playing in the primary, what are they doing during the primary period? They're what, king making. What it, they're trying yeah. to send little signals about right. who's better and then everyone right. will go in that direction with or without their actual money. There you go. Exactly. So, but on the other hand, they don't want to look like they're meddling in the primary because, and this is why there's so many fascinating currents to the Republican and conservative contest that once again speak to the ferment and roiling of ideas and candidates and interesting things happening in re- Republican politics, none of which is happening really, not, or very little of which is happening in Democratic politics right now. So, um, John- because you have, because you, as you say, Emily, they, they want to send a signal, but there are a number of people in the grassroots and the Tea Party movement who are enraged when the elites try to pick winners and losers. Even Now, mostly they're enraged when the establishment tries to do it, but they don't like it, I think think if the Koch brothers started sort of saying you you go vote for them because of course that's an offense of their sort of individual choice and individual liberty and choosing who they like so the Koch brothers have to sort of walk a fine line so did the Koch brothers back away from Walker because of his right-wing statement about looking at legal immigration I mean I guess we really have no idea or maybe they're just enjoying all the intention and everyone quote auditioning for them which is such a crazy image when Democratic candidates go and audition in front of union audiences it's a version of the same thing what's different of course is that the unions are they're appealing to the entire union membership as opposed to appealing that's different that is a difference right well I that's I just (laughs) one person versus I just answered my own question yeah Um, (laughs) anyway so I know. I think the they backed off it. Bef- uh, I think they backed off it sort of very quickly after it was leaked. What did happen though is the fellow who is kind of in charge of Hispanic outreach for one of the Coke enterprises absolutely 
slammed uh, Walker in his um, when Walker said he was would consider or sort of supported Jeff Ses- Senator Jeff Sessions's idea about limiting legal immigration. It was a very the New York Times had the story, a very strong statement in opposition to what Walker said by this fellow who works for one of the Koch organizations, which was, uh, I thought, interesting. What is what is Walker's plan on immigration, Emily? I, I I don't Does What's he have the, a plan. He made a kind of slightly incoherent statement about how like, hey, Jeff Sessions is talking about taking a look at legal immigration. Let's do that. And then when you go back and look at what Jeff Sessions is saying, he's basically saying that immigration is to blame for all of America's ills for stagnant wages, for the rise in welfare. God knows what he's talking about. Anyway, it just made Walker seem super anti-immigrant. And I think more broadly, the challenge for Walker is that I mean, so what happened with him was he sort of he this is in an interview with Glenn Beck. And he he, as Emily said, he sort of hinted, but didn't really get that specific. The challenge for Walker, at least when I talk to Republican voters, they love him. They love what he did in Wisconsin. They love that he might be able to unite the various parts of the Republican Party. But he's had in some cases as a result of sort of gotcha questions that are off topic, but also with respect to his positions on immigration and same-sex marriage and other kinds of issues, he's kind of looked like he's trying to have it both ways. He's creating a sense that he's that he's not got a fixed compass on some of these issues. It may just be vagueness. It's early in the race. But if you get that rap, the tricky thing is then you're in a political season where you want to be vague. You want to be kind of like all things to all people. And what you need to do to be successful can um, sometimes trip you up if you've already got that rap. And that's, of course, what's happening to Hillary Clinton. You know, she's already got the rap. People are inclined to see her a certain way so that when she acts purely politically, people are like, oh, that's a greater sin than they might otherwise mark it down as. Can I ask a different question? I was agog this week about a story about Jeb Bush potentially, essentially, outsourcing his entire campaign to his super PAC. In other words, unlimited donations going to this ostensibly independent organization, which would be run by like Bush's best friend, dear supporter. I feel like this is in some ways the next logical step. Like it's pretty genius, actually. Why not circumvent all the all the why not circumvent the few remaining restrictions on campaign donations by um, treating your super PAC as a place you can sort of send lots of whistles to in terms of messaging to make sure they're actually doing what you want and then have people be able to write these enormous checks. But I mean, isn't this basically like practically the end of of any kind of separation of big money influence from presidential campaigns? I think it's a good point. The tricky thing for a campaign and what will be really interesting for Jeb Bush is Jeb Bush is a bit of a micromanager. And we saw this in the last cycle, of course, where people would have a super PAC and they would be run or headed by their best friend. And the reason they do that, of course, is because they're not supposed to coordinate. And so you want somebody who has your interests at heart. But we did see instances in which where the campaign was at cross purposes with the PAC and where it was obviously not in their interest in certain cases. And this happened in the 2014 election as well. So you can have your best pal doing it, but sometimes your best pal can can mess you up. And so it'll be interesting if somebody like a micromanager like Bush would be willing to cede all of that. And then also because while the, the relationships are, you know, the, the laws about what you can and can't do in terms of coordination are pretty, the barriers pretty low, still getting caught in that 
could be a problem and candidates might not want to do that. But maybe they were they would want to do that if they get unlimited money going in there. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like they could just get on TV and say, this is my next plan, or just like write a little memo on the internet. Hey, world, let's turn in this direction of this campaign. Or, or you can send out a bunch of tweets. Like, well, but then you're right. public. Right. That's you fine. To, right. Well, you're public. You're saying, look, this is where we're going. You're not saying, hey, Super PAC, you know, put up this particular ad. Yeah. It depends where you think the money. I mean, yes, that's good for like ads. But the question is whether money, well, I mean, ads cost a lot of money. You need a lot of money. So that's a fine way to do it. And then just spend the money of the campaign on the ground stuff and the other things that you need to have a really close watch over. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, it's probably a super efficient way to um, get even more money into the political process. And um, if Jeb Bush is going to do it, you can be pretty sure that Hillary Clinton will be right behind him. Right. And then you can see the Supreme Court saying, hey, well, why not just allow people to write one million dollar checks directly to candidates? Because essentially the barriers we've set up are farcical. So let's just knock those down, too. I mean, seriously, like that is where we are heading. And to think about this in relation to the Koch brothers influence, this idea that the kingmakers now are just these incredibly wealthy people. I don't know. Maybe it's no worse than when we had, you know, political chieftains and Tammany Hall and this sort of back room idea. But it just seems crazy to me that these um, a few billionaires can be exerting this kind of influence. But David, you're going to say it's totally rational and that more of them should get on board, right? Well, that's those are two different points. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's certainly rational for lots of these billionaires to be spending more money on politics if they, they think they can have a gain. But I think it's appalling that they that it, this is what we've come to. It, it's clearly I, a worse outcome than having a much more democratic, open, flatter system. Right. It's obviously worse. Right. And one way in which it's um, it seems to me to be not good from my favorite standpoint, which is the standpoint of like, well, I don't know if debate? this is true. But anyway, yeah, like ferment <laughs> and debate. And I was about to say, you know, the fact that you have forces who are just like two or three people and Sheldon Adelson is another type like this sort of giving big money they're not going to give big money or no one has yet. And, and maybe this would be really cool if a, if some sugar daddy could pick somebody out of obscurity. But they're picking people who are within a pretty narrow band yes. of opinion and behavior and systematic approach. I mean, so Scott Walker, he's kind of a between the lines. In, in, it's not like they're supporting like Rand Paul or somebody who's got a whole new set of clever ideas, whether you like them or not. And Hillary Clinton, of course, is being supported by the vast money on the left. And so you don't, you know, but it Scott would be Walker, great if all this money could be supporting a flurry but, of but, crazy but new John, kinds of candidates. But John, this is, I think you're slightly off base here because Scott Walker by the standards of what politics was 30 years ago. Even 10 or 20 years ago. Radically right wing, is extremely right wing. So one of the things that the effect of this money has had- But how is he more right wing than say, in what particular way is he more right wing than Ronald Reagan? Oh, um, we could, I mean- Union best. Well, what was Reagan's first big big effort as president? Tax- to break up the Pilot air traffic union? controller union. Yeah, so no, that's, John, John. So I'm cannot, get, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Credible claim that the Republican Party well, today I, I, is, I didn't make is the, less right wing than so the, the Republican Party of 30 years ago. That two is a things. preposterous thing. It but is but that's far, fortunately far I didn't right wing. Fortunately, I didn't make that claim. I was asking you to support the claim you made, which is that. <laughs> 
So fortunately, I am claimless in this. Um, which is the point you made, which is Walker is so much more to the right from where the Republican Party was. And so I was just saying, identify where so that we could then take the, the conversation from there. In terms of union busting, which is the biggest thing he's known for, that's a, certainly a position the Republican Party's had forever, is being anti-union. But so, he's executing it on a whole new level. Well, that just means he's, that just he's, means he's been successful. <laughs> I mean, it, but it's not like it's not like he's for, you know, some crazy idea the Republican Party has never had. He may be for it more than they have been, although you can find people until this week. I mean, so immigration would be a good example to pick because his position on immigration in terms of limiting legal immigration is to the farthest part and certainly far to the right of where Reagan was. So that would be a good place to start would be with legal immigration. But anyway, so I just wanted to like figure out what our terms were here. Well, on taxes and on immigration... But hold on. No, but wait. Ronald Reagan had a massive tax cut on marginal rates. That's what he ran on. He ran a massive tax cut on marginal rates at a time when marginal rates were were 70 percent. But my point is, if we're talking about an ideological position and and Reagan, then it's, you know, it's the identical ideological position. No, it's not identical ideological. position. He wants to reduce marginal rates. It's not an identical ideological position because where the field exists is so different. But you're talking about Scott Walker who wants to reduce marginal tax rates, and that's what Ronald Reagan ran on. Like, right, but David now is you saying may, that you can Ronald say Reagan, then the ideology, Ronald Reagan. The ideology is roughly the same. Now you can say, well, in this current condition, that's a crazy idea, and Reagan would have done it. I don't. I doubt it. I think he would right, have, because that's what have, he believes. So <laughs> I guess my point is that you have to find somewhere where the ideological position is vastly different. And on taxes and unions, it's exactly the same. On immigration, it's not. And so that would be that would be one place where but you would I don't. Say. But I guess I think that the question is not ideology. The question is the actual tactical policies that people are proposing today are so wildly further to the right than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, I massively so. Massively further to the right, and as a result, it's not that they're picking within a narrow band. It's that they've moved the band. I mean, you've you've, you've looked at the the studies of the Senate or the House. The average, right, but you've taken the average legislator is far. Further to the right, but you're making and an the argument about the Democrats. Democrats have not but moved if, to the left. If you want Republicans sh- have moved to the right, if and you want to shift from to your the original right, claim, that's one reason fine. they've moved so far to the right is that there is money and support for a position which is much further to the right. So it's not that there, it's not the Cokes are sort of backing whoever is in the field. It's that the Cokes and a kind of conservative infrastructure have pushed the field to the right. Right. Well, okay. So that's a different claim. So that's a di- that's a different claim. Which is, it's true that the Republican Party is far. That the center of the Republican Party is to the right of where it once was. My point is that the candidates are all within a narrow band of where things are now. You know, nobody's throwing a great deal of money to John Kasich. That all of this money, you could imagine a situation in which it would create greater competition of a variety of ideas. And what it's really doing is lifting up people who are able to succeed within a pretty narrow band of ideas. So that's what I was arguing. Well, that is true. But that narrow band of ideas is on my right pinky. More GabFest in just a moment, but first, a word from one of our sister podcasts here at the Panoply Network. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter, host of Inc. Uncensored, a podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, cool companies, and everything else that hits the like buttons of my colleagues. This week, we'll be talking with Maria Aspen about... The rise of online lending and why finance is really cool now, really. And John Fine about... The pugilistic case for take your kids to work today, literally. (laughs) And Chris Frieswick about... 
the 10th annual Ink Magazine and Ink.com 30 Under 30 and why it makes me feel bad about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Plus whiskey and vaping and a genuine spit take. So subscribe to Ink Uncensored at iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm. The Supreme Court, Emily, I hear they're hearing arguments in the gay marriage case this week. Gay marriage is going to win. How is it going to win? What's going to happen? It doesn't even feel like this is a live issue anymore. It feels like, oh, we're just waiting for it to all happen. Right. I know when you started the show by calling it, would you go to a gay marriage? I was thinking, I wonder if we have any listeners who would answer no to that question. Surely there is someone out there. I don't like going to weddings much these days because I don't really get invited to them. Have you gone to a same-sex wedding? Because I will tell you that it's exciting in a new way. You feel like the institution is expanding. I, I went to a gay marriage last October of a dear friend of mine, and I just felt this level, I felt like I was participating in something much more meaningful, socially speaking, than I feel at most weddings. It was great. I recommend it to everyone. Um, should we talk about the Supreme Court? Yeah. So the, so just tell us how they're going to get there. Yeah. So they have two questions before them. The big, broad one that the marriage equality movement hopes will win is, does the Constitution prohibit states from refusing to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples? That would mean, if the Supreme Court says constitutional right, that every state in the union would start issuing licenses to gay couples. And that would overturn the existing bans that continue in 13 states and asterisk Alabama, which had its ban lifted by a federal judge and then had the state Supreme Court rebel and tell all the probate clerks not to grant the licenses. The second possible question is for all the states to be required by the Constitution to recognize same-sex marriages performed elsewhere. That would be a kind of middle ground. In the end, it would lead essentially to the same results because you could cross the border and come back and you would still have your marriage recognized. It would be symbolically disappointing to the marriage equality movement because it would still signal a kind of second-class status. I think the court's unlikely to adopt that middle position. The real question is what one imagines, is what Justice Kennedy is interested in doing. There is a legal tension in these cases, um, which is between states' rights and individual civil rights. Facing this as a tension related to gay marriage is a new dilemma for Justice Kennedy because the last time we were here in 2013, when we had um, the case United States versus Windsor, Edie Windsor was a widow, and she was trying to get the spousal federal benefits that would have been due her if she had been married to a man. So it was this claim that federal tax benefits should track state law because Edie Windsor was legally recognized as married in the state of New York. That was this great challenge for Justice Kennedy. The gay rights movement had deliberately set it up this way so that states' rights dovetailed with gay rights and gay families, the children of gay couples. And and Kennedy clearly embraced this position. So there's some small question now that we're talking about overturning state bans. Is Kennedy still going to be on board? And I just think he will be. Is Because of the progress of history or because of some ruling he once gave or... Because of the progress of history, because the evidence is so much on the side of gay marriage being a social benefit, you know, this is like an amazingly 
fastly moving train that we're on where, you know, 15 years ago, this was basically unthinkable. 12 years ago, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said that gay couples had the right to marry according to the Massachusetts Constitution. Lots of other states of lots of different political persuasions passed laws saying, no, we don't want this to happen. And then essentially the argument against gay marriage just evaporated. It turned out there was lots of research showing that kids do just as well when they're raised by gay couples as by straight couples. The notion that gay marriage was going to somehow threaten the institution of marriage in a way that would hurt heterosexual marriage just seems kind of nonsensical. And now we're left with this weird, like, pro-creation, pro-procreation argument that is both under and un- over-inclusive in the sense that there are lots of straight couples who get married who are not intending to have children, and we don't say boo to them. And there are lots of gay couples who get married because they do want to have families. So it just seems to me, like, legally speaking, it's clear where we are. And then one additional question that's left, though, which is, Oh, kind of respectable point of disagreement is about the process. Do we want the Supreme Court ending this legal debate, nationalizing same-sex marriage, or do we want state-by-state change through ballot initiatives or laws or state court rulings that are more organic and embedded in the fabric of a state's politics? That's what we'll be sacrificing if the Supreme Court issues a big ruling. And is that just a pure federalism thing or is there an argument to be made that – and this goes to the point David often raises, which is like pace of change. So that if you don't do this through the states, if this is a judicial edict from the Supreme Court, that it doesn't carry along and bring along those people in places that might be resistant to it. Yeah, it's the second point, which is a good one to think about. And, you know, the gay rights movement has been very aware of this. Right before Windsor, what they were putting their energy into was ballot initiatives. And they passed three of them in Maine and Maryland and Washington state. And then what happened was that the lower courts stepped in after Windsor and issued, it's like 22 states have had court rulings overturning their gay marriage bans since then. It's about that number. And so it was like there was no time for the ballot initiatives. The the courts just took over that role. And I think it's an open question how much it matters. The good thing about ballot initiatives and lawmaking is that it's a way for social change to take deeper root. It comes from people thinking through this in the democratic process. When judges issue orders, you worry that it's they're not going to take, that there's going to be some backlash. You know, my feeling is we've seen actually precious little of that. Alabama is the only state that has tried to defy um, a federal court order. And I think, as David started out by saying, like, we've kind of moved past this issue as a country. Republican politicians don't want to talk about it. It's not a good wedge issue for them. They're probably going to be the most relieved if the Supreme Court issues a 50-state ruling. Why do we think think this is different from civil rights, where the judicial intervention— was necessary. It had to happen. At the same time, it's pretty clear that we didn't have the progress on civil rights issues that I think we're going to have on gay rights issues. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any ambiguity that in five, 10 years, the kind of integration of gay citizens into American life is going to be complete. Essentially, there will be very little prejudice left and it won't have the same kind of persistence that, that segregation did and that 
you know, fights over civil rights have had. Why, why is that? I mean, I think it's because race is tied to class division and economic inequality and economic justice and injustice in a way that sexual orientation just isn't, right? They're just, they don't track. And so the underlying conditions of inequality for racial minorities in the United States are just much more tangled to address. Right. And right, you can wave the legal magic wand if you're the Supreme Court and just like end this civil rights problem and it will be gone and people will get married and that will be that. And that's, you know, it's we that we had a similar moment with Loving versus Virginia when the court um, said there was a constitutional right to interracial marriage in 1967. But it didn't you know, change the status of this group of people in a complete right. way because of the rates of interracial marriage remained low and there were so many other issues to address. And this is maybe just restating your point, but if special rights to the minority in this case affects my economic well-being, which is to say that if you help African-Americans in whatever way, it's going to potentially take jobs away from me or that's money that's not coming to me or whatever, you might be more exercised than if you didn't feel a real threat. Like, let them, I mean, right. not people may not be, everybody has an economic interest. Not everybody has a deep feeling about the offense that's being done to the institution of marriage, which isn't to say that the people who do feel that way aren't passionately feeling that but way. But there are a small number. I mean, I think the other thing that matters so much is that the social divisions between the gay and straight community have fallen away. You know, now that there's so many people out of the closet, like everybody has a family member or friends who are gay because that's how the world is. And we know each other, whereas the divisions in American society between people of different right. races and especially right. different classes are, if anything, matter magnified um, lately. Do you, do you guys think this gotcha questioning of Republican candidates, would you attend a gay wedding, has any value at all, given what you've just said, Emily? I mean, I think it's a social signal that shows that the position of I won't go is pretty on the fringe. And sure, you can invoke your personal religious beliefs about your own behavior in a way that is different from what you think should be legal or illegal. I think people would have some respect for that. But it just seems pretty antediluvian, I think. I think the, it's, a, it's a really, I mean, I'm a lot in the thinking about questions business these days. I think it's a, a great question, David. I think on the one hand, it is a sort of like, what does this have to do with policy? Except that it's one of those questions that kind of knocks the talking points against each other and makes them kind of vibrate and makes you think like, okay, what is this person's like underlying view? And they can make, as Emily said, the distinction between personal and public. And that's Great. But then that's told you something already, which is we think about these issues differently as in, with a, respect to our own faith than we should with respect to public policy. And if we think about them differently, then you could say, well, why are you bringing one into the other when you're making public policy? But it just it's a question that stirs up maybe some different kinds of answers that do have a public policy relevance. And also it got to the question ultimately where Marco Rubio said that he thought that this was not a choice. And so that's quite interesting because if it's that not, not a choice. That being gay is not a choice. Sorry. That's yes, what he yes, said, yes, which is crazy talk. Oh, wait. wait no, wait, no, no. So, the opposite no. of crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, I got mixed up. I was, so excited. <laughs> I was so excited to, to denounce Marco Rubio. Sorry. He said the, the right thing to say, which is that homosexuality is not chosen. It's an immutable characteristic. It's part of people's identity. But that's <laughs> if that's the case, if it's a part of your immutable identity and your view is that the state shouldn't do things to trample on your – in this case, if it's immutable, then it's God-given. If the state's trampling on your God-given right to pursue your happiness, then you get into 
very different territory than if you say, well, this is just a lifestyle choice and I'm not going to let you do your harmful lifestyle choosing. And that's a really interesting question, which all it seems to me derived from what was a gotcha question. Yeah, and so, that's a really good point. Would you attend a wedding between two illegal gay immigrants? You know, there was a whole meme on Twitter of these the other day of like, would you go to a wedding? I can't remember. They were some of them were really funny. Did you guys read the like, amazing, if you didn't like the groom and anyway, the, did you guys read the amazing story of the gay marriage from 40 years ago in The Washington Post? No, oh, no. Oh, my God. It was an incredible story about this couple who had they had immigration. Basically, one of them was uh, Australian and there was an immigration issue and he couldn't stay. And there was a clearly like a there was a nice clerk who just thought like there's nothing in the Colorado law that seems <laughs> to indicate you that can't, we can't marry these people. And it was a sort of a liberal person. So she she gave them a marriage license. That's and awesome. then there was this letter that was written. I'm going to forget the details, but it basically said something about it was a letter from the government that said your faggot marriage license is meaningless they used the word faggot in a letter from the government (gasps) it was shocking and the craziest part of it was that the final judge the final person who issued the final ruling against this couple was anthony kennedy oh god no, and he, he wasn't doing it. It wasn't like an anti-gay No, we didn't have a thing. choice. It, had, it was one of these things. He's was, still repenting. See, like he can put that demon to rest. It was a great story. I wish I had I'd, I had forgotten all about it and just remembered as we were we talking. We can post anyway, the link. Let's go to uh, Cocktail Chatter. When you're, when you're planning your questioning, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, so my uh, whistle stop this week was about the election of 1884 and um, of course. Grover, Grover Cleveland's out-of-wedlock child, or was it his? So he was accused of having this child with Maria Halpin when he was a bachelor at about the age of 40, or as one of the newspapers says, a man of 40 lusty summers. And after I wrote it, somebody on Facebook was like, oh, you know, and or after I did the whistle stop, they said it was really interesting. I looked up what happened to the boy. And I hadn't done that because I was dealing only with the election at its time. So the boy's name is Oscar Folsom Cleveland. Okay. So I went to start looking into this. And so Folsom was the name of Cleveland's best friend. And that one of the rumors was that, in fact, Cleveland hadn't sired the child. The child wasn't his. But that Oscar Folsom was married and had had this affair with Maria Halpin and that Cleveland took the rap because he was a bachelor. And so better to be a bachelor who did this than to be a married man who did it. So that's fine. OK, whatever. And so then Cleveland gets married when he's in the White House. And I was looking at his actual children, and one of his actual children is named Richard Folsom Cleveland. And I was like, that's weird. Why do they have the same middle name? So the reason it's weird, or the reason they have the same middle name, is that Grover Cleveland married his friend Folsom's daughter, who was 27 years his junior. junior. She was 21 when she married him. In the White House, uh, which is the largest age difference, I think, other than uh, John Tyler. Mm, Too bad um, she wasn't his intern. So then, while I was in this fog of, like, marrying and children and all of that, I was reading David's favorite book, which is Grant's biography. So at the beginning of Grant's biography, he says where he came from, and he descended from Matthew Grant, who uh, reached Dorchester, Massachusetts in 1630. And in the beginning of the of his book, it's like the Bible. It's this person begat that person begat that person. But then so I'm like blowing through the begat begat begats. And then suddenly he says, I am descended from both the wives of Matthew Grant. Hmm. So like way back in his past, 
his great 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 grandfather married two different women. They had children who then married, and then he is the product of that. That's a little yucky. So our early presidents were there was just a lot of um, inbreeding or the hint of inbreeding. Well, if, if inbreeding gets you a Ulysses S. Grant, I know you. Maybe we should. <laughs> we should uh, all be marrying uh, our sisters. Emily, what's your chatter? Um, <laughs> I don't know how to quite follow up on that line. Ooh. I am interested in some steps that Twitter took this week to address trolling and abuse on Twitter. I don't want to give Twitter too much credit. It has sucked at handling abuse and trolling for years, as its own CEO told the staff recently in a memo that leaked. But I'm interested in this because so one thing they're doing is uh, taking a more expansive approach to threat. So now if you are threatening someone or promoting threats, you could have various measures taken against you. And they're going to start experimenting with kind of interim sanctions, like freezing an account for some amount of time, and the person who's affected will be able to see the amount of time. Or also, you might have to delete all the offending tweets you wrote before you get reinstated. And they're also, it seems like, thinking of trying to use an algorithm, especially when they see a kind of mob descending on Twitter to try to stop it in action and kind of freeze it before it can get started. And I'm really glad that some social media company is at least experimenting with these ideas because, as I'm sure I've made clear previously, the notion that the social media companies don't have to enforce their rules or even shouldn't enforce their rules against uh, really abusive, threatening speech in the name of the First Amendment and free speech just seems off base to me. So um, let's see. Let's see how this works. My chatter Maybe I'll do two chatters, but quickly, I want to endorse a wonderful book I read called The Heart of Everything That Is, and it is the story of American history, which I didn't know. It's the story of Red Cloud, who was a Sioux, Sioux warrior chief in the 18, well, throughout the mid-19th century. He was about half a generation older than Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, who were more famous, but Red Cloud in the 1860s in northern Wyoming, southern Montana, as there were these enormous efforts to settle and to mine gold in western Montana and to settle that part of the country, which involved a lot of transit through Sioux areas and also settlement in Sioux areas, Red Cloud led the war against the United States and defeated the United States in a war which was known as Red Cloud's War, which I'd never heard of. And the story of what it was like on the plains, about what it was like to be a soldier in the U.S. Army fighting on the plains, about what it was like to be a Sioux, about the battles among the Indian tribes at the time, is an enthralling book. It tells a history I didn't know at all about. Red Cloud is in some ways an incredible figure and very heroic, and in other ways just awful. I can't recommend it highly enough. The Heart of Everything That Is by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. Also, just plots victory lap. I just want to say that Henry Rahans, who had been charged with with sexual abuse of his wife who had dementia, was acquitted this week in Iowa. And there was an enormous amount of discussion, partly among our listeners, many of whom think that I, David Plotz, was endorsing marital rape and endorsing rape of all sorts. But there was an enormous amount of discussion about this case, and and there was a great debate in the New York Times among some philosophers about in what case you can have sex with someone who is, has dementia and what, what consent means in whether it's someone you're married to, whether it's somebody you've just met, whether, you know, what their medical condition is. Emily, I hear sighing deeply. 
I wasn't um, sighing at you, I swear. I just came away from it absolutely convinced that I was 120% right and that this was a that it was terrible the way this case was criminalized so easily and terrible the way that it was so simple for the stepchild of Henry Rayhans, the daughter of Donna Lou Rayhans, to cause distress and to cause the the heavy arm of the state to descend on Henry Rayhans. I am not sighing because it sounds like you had additional facts that support that conclusion. I just wanted us to get away from the notion that just because people are married, that assumes that they always consent to sex in perpetuity. Yeah, there, there was a lot of people who tweeted at me saying I was endorsing marital rape and saying you weren't, you weren't, and That's saying, but it's also saying, oh, anyone who is who is with dementia, they can't possibly consent, and therefore a husband having sex with them is is is, is rape. Is obvious, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, one thing to do is to think about sort of who the benefit of the doubt goes to, and the idea of being cautious and judicious about bringing rape charges against a man for having sex with his wife. It seems like we should start from okay, like what do we really know about this situation? Not a kind of mechanical notion of consent. Nice. All right. Uh, our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Wolo, and also helped today by Jeff Friedrich. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.